You're listening to Making Global Learning Universal, conversations about engaging diverse perspectives, collaboration, and complex problem-solving in higher education, on campus, online, in local communities, and abroad. I'm your host, Stephanie Dosher, Director of Global Learning Initiatives at Florida International University and co-author of Making Global Learning Universal, promoting inclusion and success for all. You can't assume anything. You have to check your assumptions at the door and because it's, there's never one perspective in politics. There's never one perspective in public policy. And it's about weighing the different ones. But more importantly, it's about listening. My class is a political class, but I teach a bunch of pre-med students about empathy. And again, if I had not known about the global learning parameters, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if I would have been able to name what I wanted the students to get out of the experience. That's FIU professor Kate Houghton. Her global learning course, Cancer Wars, is deeply informed by her experience as a survivor her years working on Capitol Hill, and her work passing four significant pieces of legislation that help young adults cope with the far-reaching impacts of their diagnosis. The conversation you're about to hear documents the first time Kate and I met in person. She teaches her course remotely, in part from her home in D.C., but also from our FIU in D.C. campus, which she also talks about. We first got to know each other virtually when she took the online version of our Global Learning Course Design and Instruction Workshop. Take a listen, and I hope you take away some really big ideas about the kinds of professional development we need to provide global learning faculty, especially those who are new and those teaching remotely. So Kate, I think the natural place for us to begin is for me to say, it's nice to meet you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We've never had an opportunity until about 15 minutes ago to meet in person. That's right. That's right. So you're here on campus, but what brings you here from D.C.? Let's Maybe we should start with actually getting to know each other a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm actually a third generation Miami native. My grandmother was born on Miami Beach. My mother was born in uh, Core Gables, and I was born in South Miami. That's so cool. Yes. I am also. Oh, really? Which is extremely rare. I'm also a third generation FIU alum. So my grandmother, my mother, my father, my aunt, like I have a huge family population who's gone come and attended um, in some capacity FIU. So it's really fun to be back on campus. So cool. My grandfather came to Miami Beach in 1921. There you go. So, but I am the first FIU alum, although my mom was one of the first students at Miami-Dade College. Oh, wow. She went the first semester that it was opened in 1960. Wow. So that's a little bit of a rarity. Yes. Oh, our yes. our story. <laughs> yes. Okay, so what brings you here to campus this particular visit? Because you don't live in Miami. No, I don't. Uh, so I teach a global learning course through the Honors Col- College. It's an upper division level course. And I try to uh, come back on campus at least once a month just to see my students face to face. But other than that, yes, I, I actually teach my students from a computer screen. So my students are based just down the hall uh, in a classroom that's equipped with all kinds of technology. And I'm on a screen and we interact virtually for about two and a half hours every week. Okay. And do you do that from your home or do you do I understand correctly that you've conducted at least one 
class session from our FIU in DC space? Yes. So the almost the entire first semester, uh, since Honors College is a two semester program, uh, the whole first semester I was out of the FIU in DC campus, which is really impressive that FIU has made that commitment because most public universities don't make a commitment to putting a space, a campus uh, in Washington. It can be cost prohibitive. Um, It's sometimes hard to make that sell. Mm -hmm. But for FIU, it wasn't that hard. And it was great to be on uh, kind of the quasi-steering committee to help make that case. And then to be an alum, it, it was also a really wonderful opportunity to network with other alums, but also meet the faculty who are based in Miami, who you may not interact with anymore as an alumni in an, another city. And that's how I got hooked up with Dean Espinosa of the Honors College, was just meeting him on the FIU and D.C. campus. Okay, now I didn't know this, that you were part of that steering committee. It it did take some time to build the vision for what the space could be. Mm -hmm. So let's just take this opportunity to share that with anyone who would be interested in what this model is. Could you just summarize just a little bit about like why we have... And a, a space, a campus, mm-hmm. um, although it, it's not like a traditional campus, it's, no. just, it's a space, yep. but um, why we have that space and how we use it to benefit not only FIU students, faculty, alums, but other stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Well, the FIU and DC campus is all about jobs. And there's no better place to get connected to almost every single industry in the world than in Washington, DC. We have United States um, government leaders there, whether they be in the administration or in um, elected office through the U.S. Congress or even the Supreme Court. But almost every single industry has a presence in Washington. You know, the the heartbeat of the country, maybe not the economics, but the heartbeat of regulation and and um, just the, the lifeblood of the country really does run through Washington. And it was so visionary for the university to take that leap and say, this is how we're going to help promote jobs. And so the FIU and DC campus really works closely with the Career Services Unit here on campus to ensure that we can place alumni in high-level positions um, all throughout the country. Now, uh, and in Washington, DC, right, where the power is. So when I started in uh, in DC. I graduated from FIU in 2006 and went up to DC, no campus, really very little alumni network, um, also was a Democrat. Um, and now the university is much more moderate, but at the time it was a little bit more conservative. So I didn't have a lot of connections to make there. Um, and I got an unpaid internship. That's you know, you take a huge leap of faith to move yourself to Washington with no networks, no support system, and then no, no real paying job. Um, and that kind of became a part of the story, I think, mm-hmm. for why we needed a campus in D.C. Because I probably didn't need to have to work as hard if I had an, a, a network I could really tap into or dedicated staff in Washington to help place me. And uh, one of the reasons I got involved in the the new campus vision was I would, if FIU asked me to meet with someone, I I did. Every single person, whether they wanted an internship, they want to know about politics or policy, 
uh, every single person for like five years coming out of uh, D.C. wanted to, or out of Miami wanted to ma- be in foreign policy. I was like, well, there's the State Department and that's it. Right. <laughs> so why don't we talk about USAID, which does water and international development? Or why don't we look at some of our programs through the uh, Department of Agriculture? There's so many ways to make a difference. And I, it, it's really important to look at um, – Secretary Acosta, for example, who was the dean of the College of Law, and now he's a cabinet-level secretary, you know, I think the first ever for FIU, like that is because FIU is a presence in D.C., right? We are seen as power brokers, and we are seen as movers and shakers. And no, there's really no other university, that, especially in Florida, that can say that. So this is very interesting because you're talking about your journey from Miami to D.C., and and I would like you to talk a little bit more about your particular journey in D.C., what you what brought you there, what what attracted you, and then the kind of work that you did there, because that's going to lead us to the global learning course eventually. That's and and I think it's an important um, journey. Because it's a developmental journey for you as well. So when you found yourself in D.C. in 2006 and you were in this unpaid internship, what were you doing? And then Mm -hmm. what did you end up doing and what are you doing now? So I should backtrack just a a couple of years. (laughs) So uh, I wanted to be a social worker. I wanted to change the world. That's I just wanted to make a difference. Didn't know how I was going to do it, but I had um, originally majored in psychology and wasn't loving it. And uh, at the same time, our governor, Governor Jeb Bush, some of your listeners may not know this, uh, so Florida has a balanced budget amendment, which means that we can never be in a deficit. So at the end of the year, if if you cannot balance the budget, things need to be cut. And I was 19, so kind of newly minted in the in the college world, and our governor had cut education funding for the Department of Corrections. And my grandmother, who is a saint, and if there's an, a way to apply for sainthood, I will make sure my grandmother gets like, <laughs> put in there. Um, and we're Catholic, so maybe I've got one up on that. Um, she had taught uh, pre-K and kindergarten for 23 years just retired and decided she was going to start a school in a women's maximum security prison, Dade Correctional Down on Chrome Avenue. Well, after 23 years of kindergarten teaching, she couldn't really teach math at the level that was needed. And um, she was my grandmother. So she, you know, some good old Catholic guilt asked me to go to the prison with her and teach math. And I did uh, during during my sophomore year at FIU. And at the same time, I was like, oh, I want to be a social worker, great opportunity to really learn about some of the hardcore issues that either cause people to go to jail or some of the the uh, kind of the mitigating factors maybe that we could take out of their lives to prevent that and also rehabilitation, things of that mm-hmm. nature. Anyway, at this, all this is happening. I'm doing my psychology stuff, um, and I take Intro to American Government, and I just fall in love. I, it was in a trailer out where well, I think the College of Law is now. <laughs> it was with Dean Nicole Ray, who's no longer here. Uh, but he that one class inspired me and showed me the power government has to create good and great good in people's lives. So I always went to Washington with this sort of badge of honor, having been having had access to public education and the opportunity to kind of change my mind mid, you know, in my sophomore year, then to go to Washington and really put my head down and know 
that this was a way I could make a difference. So did an unpaid internship. Um, I sat in like a back of the room cubicle, just put my head down. That's the other thing about FIU students, why I love teaching here. You have some of like, it's, these students have grit. Grit. Yeah, grit. that's the word. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I worked, I worked, I went to school full time. I um, did traffic, you know, I had the very typical FIU student story. And it wasn't hard for me to go on Capitol Hill unpaid, put my head down, answer phones, do tours, write letters. You said, you said to jump, I how high? Right. Six months later, I was offered a job and then was able to actually work um, for the U.S. House of Representatives for almost five years. And, and you worked for a specific legislator? Or? Yes, I okay. worked for uh, U.S. Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, so okay. not too far from here. And that was the thing. I had to work for somebody from Florida. <laughs> okay. Um, and so I had that opportunity, which was really fantastic uh, and was a part of and it's sort of my when I look back on my journey, it really started to begin there because that was the time the first female speaker of the house was ever elected. The first African-American president was elected. We passed the affordable care act and my boss was a chief deputy whip. So a member of the, of the house leadership. And so we really had a, I had a frontline view of the healthcare debate, economic debate, jobs debate, uh, which was really interesting because it was also during a time of the, the recession and, and, the Congress was very active trying to fix, fix, fix. So after that, uh, I was asked to move over to the Democratic National Committee for Barack Obama's reelection campaign. And that was really exciting because here's an opportunity to not just, you know, have have supported the legislative agenda of the first African-American president, but then try to get him reelected, mm-hmm. which has not always been a sure thing in the United States that presidents get reelected. So that was fun. So got, I traveled. Um, I traveled to... 80 cities in 10 months and for, for the campaign. And uh, I don't know how I did that, so don't, I, yeah. I can't tell you. I, <laughs> I won't ask you any questions A lot about of coffee that. at McDonald's, <laughs> so that's probably how that went. Um, and unfortunately, at that time, I was 27 years old, and I was diagnosed with cancer. And okay. I was, yep. So, so I was this di- is when everything changes. Everything changes for me um, because now I'm not just the person trying to make a difference in other people's lives. I am the person other people are making a difference for in their life. And it really gave me a completely different perspective. And kind of a cool story, I don't know if I shared this, but on the same, um, I was in the ICU the same day that the Affordable Care Act was upheld by the Supreme Court. Wow. So here I am, just a few years ago, seeing the law being passed, really like, wow, part of history. Then fast forward a few years, and I'm sitting in a hospital bed realizing that I never have to worry about having a pre-existing condition or being charged more because I have a pre-existing condition or being dropped coverage or reaching a lifetime maximum cap. And and Senator Elizabeth Dole, who is a Republican, so I just want to note I'm, I'm bipartisan here, mm-hmm. uh, she has this great quote that says, if you want to create good public policy, talk to the people it's going to impact. Yeah. And you know, when you're 27 working on Capitol Hill or in politics, you're not really the person being impacted. And it was, it was really a life changing experience for me because it switched my perspective. Mm -hmm. I went from the perspective of being just a a goody two shoes do-gooder to the perspective of somebody who actually would need those laws Mm -hmm. to live out the rest of my life. And so that's really where I would say my advocacy and, and even my shift into wanting to teach a global learning class, that's probably exactly where it began. Okay. So let's fast forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you've you've done this work on the FIU and DC campus. Your 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 perspective, consciousness, um, on being both sides of legislation mm-hmm. um, has has changed. How is it that you came to teach for FIU and this particular course? Mm-hmm. So the uh, the last two years, I was uh, working with a nonprofit. It's called the Young Adult Cancer Alliance. And I, as a young adult who was diagnosed with cancer, again, front row seat into some really incredible, terrible issues. And automatically people, I think, would say, oh, it's insurance or um, they, oh, they don't take their health care seriously. But in my case, for example, but in most young adults' case, you get blown off almost right away. And my doctor told me, my the original diagnosing doctor had told me, well, when we hear hoofbeats, we think of horses and not zebras. And he and they discharged me with, from the hospital with a diagnosis of heavy menstrual periods, but I had acute leukemia, which means I only had about three to six weeks to live at that time. And usually when you come in for leukemia, you don't ever leave the hospital again. So there was that, but then there was also other, other issues such as the doctors were all of my parents' age, but the nurses were more of my age. And seeing nurses who just couldn't they just couldn't deal with treating a patient who was their age. Wow. And some of those emotional issues, um, the fact that psychosocial care really doesn't exist. And then if you try to, you know, now you have the survivor label on you. Well, there are support groups for all different types of diseases. But if you go to a support group for leukemia, for, for example, the type of leukemia I was diagnosed with, the average age is 65 and gender is male. Ugh. So I, there, I had nothing in common with anybody except my nurses and fellows, right? But I had nothing in common with other patients. And so this group wanted to really raise awareness about this. And I was armed with policy, political background, lots of grit coming out of FIU. And I I jumped into kind of the cancer advocacy world, which I said I was never going to do. And my mother always reminds me, never say never. Um, so I did that advocacy. Sp- I was in advocacy space for about two years and able to pass not one, but four pieces of legislation in the first 18 months of the Trump administration. Um, again, FIU grit. <laughs> like that's, that's where that comes Extraordinary. from. But I learned that politics, in that experience, I learned that politics is not just what happens in the Capitol or at the White House or in a history book or American government class. There's so much healthcare politics, oncology politics, doctor versus patient, patient versus doctor, and what those conversations look like. And I, I wanted to give back. FIU had been a part of my story and a bit a part of my life, and I felt that they had always supported me in my career jumps and and been that raw, raw force. And I wanted the opportunity to tell the story of what that kind of politics looked like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to give back. And Thankfully, the FIU and DC campus gave, and the Honors College gave me that opportunity. So we worked together, to, and I've never taught before, so no intro to anything. Yeah. They were just like, here, write, write a syllabus. I'm like, you know, when you're too dumb to know better. I was <laughs> like, like, okay. okay. <laughs> like, that's easy. Um, you know, I had a lot of guides and things like that. But um, we we were able to craft this course called The Cancer Wars. And it's the the history and politics behind America's most deadly uh, battle. Mm-hmm. And most people don't know, but the, the war on cancer, it 
began in 1971. And we've lost more Americans to the war on cancer than, than Vietnam, Korea, the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, so during that time period. Um, but it's a it's a war we keep fighting. We keep funding. Uh, President Trump just announced another five hundred million dollars for childhood cancer research mm. in his in the State of the Union speech. Mm-hmm. Definitely all about research, but can't keep throwing money at the problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what I try to do in this class is really talk about those those issues. Like, why are we not winning this war, and how can we try to at least make some gains, right? So here you are teaching the course, and you find out that it is a global learning designated course. (laughs) So on top of being a new faculty member for the first time, and the concept of the course being taught remotely, so the students are on campus. It's not an online course per se. It's not really an online course. Not at all. It's it's a face-to-face course, but your face is transmitted via technology. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... So you have that piece, and then you find out that it's a global learning course. And just as a little bit of background for our listeners, our Honors College has a slightly different uh, curricular framework uh, than the rest of the university in that we have uh, this Mm two-semester course that all Honors College students take, but it's a thematic course. So all of the courses have the same number, 3034, 35, but Every section of the course is different. Mm-hmm. And the way global learning courses work for, you know, technically, this is how we make global learning universal, is that all sections of a course number have that global learning designation. Right. The thing is that in most cases, with the exception of the Honors College, that course number is attached to a specific title of a course with certain learning outcomes that even though different faculty may teach slightly differently, meaning they'll use different teaching strategies, slightly different content, sometimes different essential questions or assessments. Still, the course is the same. The course is intro to anthropology. The course is um, health without borders. In In the honors college case, you could have, we do have courses using the photo voice method to explore AIDS in in different communities in South Florida. We have courses on the law. We have courses on biology. We have courses on the history of medicine. We have courses. It runs the gamut. So how do we tie these courses together? Well, the way we do that is by our graduation level student learning outcomes. Where is there a space to enhance our students' global awareness, perspective, and engagement, no matter what those themes are? So so you find out... (laughs) (laughs) After you are starting to teach the course, which sometimes happens, that it's a global learning course. And the way we met is that you took our our anchor workshop, mm-hmm. the global learning course design and instruction workshop. But you took our online version yes. of it. It's self-paced. Mm-hmm. It has the same content that the on-campus version does. But you're not engaging in the workshop in the same ways as folks get to do on campus. So on campus, you're in a group. It's an interdisciplinary group. You're engaging in the same teaching strategies Mm -hmm. that we could then employ with our students. But in the self-paced workshop, it is more passive. But 
you reached out to me mm-hmm. and told me that it had a, a strong impact on you. Absolutely. And, and I thought, okay, we need to explore this in an interview, <laughs> but we're really exploring this for the first time together right now. Like, I don't know what you're going to say. I, mean, <laughs> I have a little hint of what you're going to say, but could you share what was it about the workshop? What impacted you? What was your experience? And then I do, I'm asking you multiple questions in this one question, I know. <laughs> okay. but, but so it's about how did it impact you personally? But you told me, this changed the way I thought about the course. Absolutely. And this made a, an impact on the second semester of this course. Mm-hmm. So we need to hear about that. <laughs> it actually made it an impact immediately. I started oh. even in the first semester when I was, after I had done the workshop, started tweaking things a little bit. Oh, okay. Um, it, what, one thing I will say about, on and since I do teach, I'm remote, I, I have to look at my students in like a little box <laughs> of my computer screen. Nothing really um, replaces the person-to-person contact. I think okay. you yes. know, we do learn better that way. The opportunity to network with people, great. However, and this is what the module is able to do and why I, I think it really matches up with the FIU vision, especially the FIU and D.C. campus vision, is that I'm an, I'm an expert in public policy and politics. It's going to be rare you're going to have access to somebody like me in Miami, Florida. And so having the online workshop where you, and it is self-paced, I, I think I did it over a course of a few days and there's, and you, you provide great feedback. So it's, it doesn't feel like it's just like, oh, you're just going to listen to a webinar and just, you know, be passively talked to the whole time. You know, you do part of your modules, you do have to actually, you have homework. (laughs) Right. You work on your syllabus. The homework is the thing that you need to do anyway. Exactly. And, and you gave great feedback on that. And it, and it was also one of these things where I haven't had homework since I was in college. So I took it really <laughs> seriously. I wanted to get an A, you know, <laughs> I had to get not graded. <laughs> I know, but I, you know, but you I'm, did, you got an A. Yeah. I work in elections. I'm competitive. Like that's just by nature. Um, but the, but it gave me the opportunity to, to learn about teaching principles while not being somebody who was an educator and somebody who was living and breathing in the field. And I remember having adjuncts teach me in in my undergrad. Uh, and there was a diplomat in residence who was the ambassador to Brazil one time. There's something about people being in the field for 10 or 15 years like I have been, coming back and saying, I want to give back to the community because you can answer questions in a way that connects the students to something that's really happening, that's present, it's real life. And some of the things I was already doing for example, I started every one of my classes with a current event discussion. So at first I had them try to pick the article. Then I realized that was probably not a great strategy. So then I picked the article. They had to do like a two, three sentence review. And then we spent the first 60 minutes of the class just um, just talking about it and, and creating a safe space, even virtually, where they could ask questions. They could challenge some, especially in, in Miami, politics is personal and it's a blood sport, especially at the Thanksgiving table. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they could come into a space and we could actually have conversations, we could validate concerns, people could ask questions that they probably couldn't ask of a relative, that was, that was so validated 
by taking the module and by mm-hmm. participating in the global learning. It was like, oh, okay, I am doing this right. This isn't That's just... That's fantastic mm-hmm. to hear that that part of something like this is validation that you're already... I'm so delighted to hear that because when I do the the, the same workshop with folks on campus, that is literally one of the first things that I say, which is you're already doing That's great. global learning. Th- the question is identifying it, validating it, bringing it to the surface, shining a light on it so that you know what you're doing, making sure your students know what they're doing so that they can say, this is global learning. This is, this is the substantively different experience that I'm having in this class that I wouldn't have in a non-global learning approach. Absolutely. And then adding. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah definitely adding. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the other interesting thing I learned from the the module piece or just the training generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it, it was one of these things where when I started the class, and I, I mentioned this, I think to you, um, when I started the class, the assumption was that, you know, health, all healthcare issues in this country are based on insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. And if you fix those two, you fix everything. And frankly, that's a debate we're having in the United States right now at the, at the highest levels. We're trying to fix pharma and we're trying to fix payers. And we think that that's going to solve all the healthcare problems. And the, I think the global learning piece of it kind of put it, it put a name, like it packaged what I already knew to be true, which is that you can't assume anything. You mm-hmm. have to check your assumptions at the door and because it's there's never one perspective in politics. There's never one perspective in public policy. There are thousands of perspectives and it's about weighing the different ones, but more importantly, it's about listening. And one of the things that you introduced me to is design thinking and really empathy. And so my class is a political class, but I teach a bunch of pre-med students about empathy. And again, if I had not known about the global learning parameters, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if I would have been able to name what I wanted the students to get out of the experience. Mm -hmm. So that was really important for me. And then the other thing I really, really attached to was, and I might get the name incorrect, was Bloom's Taxonomy. Yeah. I thought that that was just fantastic. <laughs> I then I, it just took me to like eight thousand different pages, and I googled things, and and it it helped. That's that is where I learned the most about what I could change about myself as a teacher, what I could add, and then also how I could assess the students' performance because not all not all students enter a, a class at the same level. Like maybe you can do a comprehensive exam and figure that out. But when you're talking about a question, for example, like is healthcare a right? Well, that question is a very hard question to answer if you don't if you're not from the United States originally. Yes. Or if you don't have any political background because you want to think healthcare is a right, but it's not in the US Constitution. Try telling that to a bunch of med students. Right. <laughs> it's mind blown. And so that the taxonomy you gave me that that framework to help assess the students and and shift my course where I thought I needed it to go to help give them that education and understanding. And I'm so, uh, that's really interesting that you mentioned that about both the the connection making and design thinking and and Bloom's taxonomy. Why? Because the the, the greatest compliment that that I get when someone comes into the workshop who may have already a background in 
teaching and learning, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe they come from the college or or the school of education or, or another, or have had professional development before where they've, they, they've learned about developmental psychology or um, curriculum design, something like Bloom's Taxonomy. They'll, they'll stop and they'll say, you know, GL, that's really good teaching and learning, (laughs) right? Right. So that is how I think about it how we think about it's it. It's career ready. Yeah, it's, teaching co- it's and also career ready. Right. Yeah. So global learning, GL, good teaching and learning. Bloom's taxonomy is one of those fundamental concepts that it just pervades all aspects of, of educational design. And then design thinking. Global learning is, it brings in strategies and concepts from outside the education space. Mm-hmm. It brings in strategies and concepts from the social change space base, from organizational change, you name it. So it is a bit of a mashup, this workshop. And we will put in the show notes kind of a, and I'm just thinking about it now, that I'll definitely put in for listeners a content outline of the workshop so people can get an idea of what they might put together in their unique mashup for, mm-hmm. for global learning. So one of the things that you, because you said something that I really connected to, and global learning is about connections, and that connection making, especially those like far reaching connections, which I think is really what you're doing with Cancer Wars. You're bringing an interdisciplinary oh, yeah. connection making. You said much of our conversation so far has been US centric, mm-hmm. right? But you do place this US centric exploration in a global perspective. perspective you implied culture and mm-hmm. immigration. I just want to share, and then maybe we could talk a little bit more about how you do this in the course, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure our listeners will want to know how how you've designed the experiences and the content that, that students have. I mentioned to you very briefly that my father is a three-time cancer survivor. Right. He had testicular cancer when he was 24. He's a stage four lung cancer survivor. He had very early stage prostate cancer. He's on his like fifteenth life, yeah. <laughs> if there are the nine lives. Um, he's he's uh, he's really and and everything in terms of modern medicine, but also alternative medicine mm-hmm. that exists. He has Absolutely. availed himself of, Absolutely. and that is how he he has been a survivor. Well, when, around the time that he was first diagnosed with lung cancer, I was running the Miami Marathon, oh. and I happened to be walking through the expo. And I saw an American Cancer Society banner at a table for an for a program called Determination, mm-hmm. which is the distance athlete fundraising arm for the American Cancer Society. Oh, okay. And she was just beginning this in Miami. In fact, there were no members. There was nobody running the marathon at that time. She was just trying to connect with people. And eventually I became the, the first volunteer coordinator for, for that initiative for that program. And one of the things that I found out was how culture impacts how families not only approach care, but interact with organizations like the American Cancer Society. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I really learned was that in Latin American Hispanic families, the focus is on we are going to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Abuela, abuelo are are going to live with the family. It's a very, very close-knit approach to care whether it's cancer or not. So when we would try to have conversations with our constituency, which is our which is our community in South Florida about donating to the American Cancer Society, it was a little bit difficult to help families understand that 
when you are supporting ACS, you are supporting yourself. You are supporting your family. Right. Because it was very much the feeling, well, well, I need to save my money to care for my family. But if you donate, you're caring for your family mm-hmm. in these myriad ways. So could you share how you bring culture and other kind of global concepts or international concepts mm-hmm. into your course to help place our understand our students understanding in that global perspective well i the global so i connected Im- immediately with the global perspective because that's public policy 101 right mm-hmm. you one of the things people don't give our government enough credit for is how slow it operates mm. everybody wants government to act right away and sometimes you need to in times of war of crisis you definitely need to act right away. But debate and thoughtfulness and gaining an understanding and education about other countries or even other states and how they do things, that's what you want to bring in. And actually, we were so my students have picked skin cancer prevention as the problem they want to try to solve this semester. And one of my students did a great job. She looked at California and New York as an example of what they've been doing to try to promote skin cancer prevention, early detection, sunscreen, things like that. And they brought them into the class to share as possible ideas with um, with their colleagues, which I, I like to I – t- I tell them their classmates are their colleagues because I want them to see it as a group activity. Fantastic. Um, but we've also looked at other countries, like, for example, in Australia, which actually has the highest rate of skin cancer, which is kind of – crazy when you think about it but I guess ozone layers not oh, a scientist like yeah. just, I'm a political scientist oh, okay. she's not really a scientist <laughs> um, but Australia has a really big skin cancer issue but they also have um, some really progressive policies for example in Australia they are probably going to be the first country in the world to eliminate the human papilloma virus from like just like polio wow. just eliminate it and the way they do that is by they mandate vaccination of the, against the HPV virus. So for just some context, uh, for HPV, uh, for the vaccine, it's one to two shots, usually given to 11 and 12-year-old boys and girls, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it prevents uh, can- it, the HPV-related cancers, which include um, about 90% of all cervical cancers, yes. 70% of throat uh, and neck cancers. Mm-hmm. Michael Douglas, the actor, actually his throat cancer was because of HPV. He did a great campaign to try to raise awareness that men also get HPV-related cancers. And now there's new research showing that melanoma is also could be caused by HPV. Oh. And usually when a virus is the cause of something, obviously it presents in, in bodies differently. Everybody's cancer is kind of unique. Um, but we've brought in those discussions about Australia and well, what are the politics of vaccinations? How do you do it? Who owns vaccinations in the United States from a pharmaceutical standpoint, but also from a regulatory standpoint? Uh, and so, you know, we talk about all these different issues happening in different countries, good and, and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it, for example, a, uh, one of my students, her father was diagnosed young, 20s or 30s, I believe, with uh, lymphoma. Mm-hmm. And he was diagnosed in Cuba, where all they did is just stuck a whole bunch of radiation into his chest. And now he's got chronic this, chronic that, secondary cancers. And you know, different countries don't always perform the same procedures 
the best way and and bringing in some of those good and bad is is really important because it, it builds that context from a policymaking standpoint it also build it shows precedent well these countries have done it these are the this is what's good this is what's bad these are the stakeholder groups who are in support these who are against and that's how you really create good public policy is by understanding all sides of the story not just your own or not just your own perspective. And again, going back to the, the question, which I constantly bring my students back to is, is healthcare a right? They all, I asked them that one day in class and they all raise their hand, yes, we believe it's healthcare is a right. I'm like, show it, show me. Because I, I, look, I've worked for the Democratic Party and Senator Sanders is a big proponent of Medicare for all and universal healthcare. If you want to change healthcare in the United States and make it a right, put it in the US Constitution where it doesn't exist right now. Okay. And, and then th- students start to... They start to peel away the different puzzle pieces of why it isn't a right, um, why we still debate um, why we still debate pre-existing conditions versus um, b- women before the Affordable Care Act. Women could be charged more because mm-hmm. women have babies. And what does that look like? But then what's also... We have a private market that operates in the in the pharmaceutical world. Well, in the UK, Canada, France, where they do have public health care, during the Great Recession, the recent recession, they look, when you have to provide health care to everybody and health care is attached to wages, taxes go down, right? The revenue for the government goes down. Well, you're not going to stop providing basic health care. You're not going to um, stop providing life-saving treatments like cancer care. What you're going to stop doing is investing in the future. So during the recession overseas, they have no clinical research, very little clinical research, new drugs, new development, any of that. Whereas in the United States, because pharma, our pharmaceutical companies are completely privatized, we're still churning out this drug and that drug and this drug. And you start, they start understanding that it's a bit more complicated to heal people in a capitalist economy, but it's not necessarily this life or death um, message that gets out that gets put out there and on 24 cable news or even in their day-to-day conversations so do students does that because I'm starting to get a visual picture when you just described the landscape across the world where there's more of a focus on research in one part of the world there's more a focus on care in another part of the world mm-hmm. there's more of a willingness to legislate to protect or care for individuals in one part of the world, and there's less of that in another part of the world. Do students start asking questions about how we exchange and the mechanisms that may or may not exist to exchange information across nations for the betterment of all? Because you in your classroom are facilitating this kind of exchange within the minds of your students. But writ large, mm-hmm. our leaders, I never see on TV a gathering of government leaders to talk about how we do healthcare in our different countries and how we sell medicines and give and share research information and, and care information across borders. I don't see that. Nope. We talk about arms control. We talk about, well, every once in a while, climate change. But there are no giant healthcare meetings. The G7 doesn't talk about he- healthcare. They'll talk about um like the World Health Organization will talk about okay, big things. Yeah. So like, for example, we've talked about China. 
So China had a communist economy, communist government, still have a communist sort of um, basic rights type government, but they've privatized their economy. Well, in the 1990s, everybody went from having absolutely no health care, or I'm sorry, completely covered health care to absolutely no health care because there was no industry. There was no healthcare industry in China. And so we we sort of tackle some of these issues of like, you know, what would it take for a country to have a privatized healthcare system versus which we have in the United States versus what would it take for us to have a public healthcare system? So we do look at at it from those perspectives and again groups like the World Health Organization kind of our umbrellas where you can get a job in DC. Yes, where you can definitely <laughs> yeah. get a job in DC, but you're right. I mean, I and this is actually and I'm glad you asked this question because this is exactly why I teach this class is because we don't have enough medical professionals in elected office or in in powerful positions in Washington. Mm-hmm. There are currently, I believe, only 7 members of Congress who are doctors and one or two who are nurses. And yet every one of us, every one of us is touched by cancer. Yeah. And other healthcare issues. Absolutely. But I think sometimes politics gets this bad name where it's like, oh, well, if you don't, you know, if you want to be a good person, don't get involved in politics, which is exactly the opposite. What I want my students to take away from this experience is they have the ability to do the research. They are going to become experts in their fields. And it's up to them to be able to share that message, whether they run for office, whether they go lead up the World Health Organization or work for an organization like that, as medical professionals, they not only have the ability to influence government, but they have this unique opportunity as citizens of what I believe is a great democracy. They have an opportunity, and I I believe an obligation, to protect their patients and their fields. And the only way you do that is by having a voice and using your voice. But what I I've, I've found and it and it's and I it is a shame and I've learned it I've learned this in myself in this class is especially for pre-med students it's really all about getting into med school then you know passing your exams. It's very focused on the books and calculus and things I know nothing about. But we don't take that opportunity to teach non-political science students about this process where we have such a open and accessible government, they could make such an incredible difference long-term after they are in their careers, after they have interactions with patients. And just a, a final piece to kind of connect to some of the questions, and they're now all, they're now all merging with me. Uh, but one of the things I asked my students to do was the food stamp challenge. Have you mm. heard of this? No. So social determinants are one of the biggest um, factors when it comes to healthcare, regardless of cancer or any other health disease. Um, and a social determinant could be access to public transportation. Mm-hmm. And even if you have access to public transportation in rural America, and, and I could get, I could have my numbers wrong just by a little bit, but in rural America, for example, it takes a cancer patient 400 miles to get to a cancer treatment facility. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you start talking about having to go every week to the doctor for a radiation treatment or a chemotherapy treatment, well, someone has to drive you. There's lost wages associated with that, the cost of transportation. Now, I was never going to have Miami-based students try to take public transportation because that might have that might have not gone over well. Um, but I had them participate in something called the Food Stamp Challenge, which members of Congress actually participate 
in as well. And it's all about that empathy piece. And it's about putting yourself in the shoes of a person who is on the supplemental nutrition program or SNAP, Mm -hmm. supplemental nutrition assistance program, SNAP. And the majority of people on SNAP are actually children. Um, But if you have somebody who's diabetic, for example, and the doctor says, well, you need to eat healthy fruits and vegetables. Well, a banana costs a dollar, but banana chips might cost 50 cents. How do you make those choices? And for for SNAP, you only get $1.25 on average per meal. So you're talking about $30 a week. Well, I took a whole bunch of future medical professionals and I said, you know what? For a whole week, you need to operate as if you were on food stamps. And you and I had them journal and log what they ate and then journal about what that experience was like. And for me, it was, you know, we can talk globally about Australia or China, but what I wanted to show them in that global context was as a future medical professional, your patients, your patients may want to be compliant. They want to save their lives. They want to live to see their grandchildren grow up. But if they don't have access to basic food, uh, transportation, uh, housing is another social determinant, toxic stress in their homes is another social determinant. These issues may not, yes, they're not traditional global issues, but these are global issues to the, on a kitchen table level. And it was really empowering to watch my students kind of leave it all on the table, take, do the exercise, and then write about that experience because you could see it made an impact. And, and that's really why I wanted to teach was because it's not really about the doctor or even the government official. It's about students now. We can make such a big difference in patient care, public policy, by making sure that we're teaching students, students in college correctly. And, so, and that's the other reason why I really connected with the global learning principles is because it really it, – it said that. It said let's create good practices as students so that when they're professionals, they're already there. Wow. <laughs> that's uh, deeply impactful for me, the fact that you are feeding our students personal, professional, and civic identities simultaneously – all around the theme or the drive, the motivation to to care for for of health care of mm-hmm. health, but you're hitting all of those aspects of our students' identity mm-hmm. simultaneously. So that brings me to the question about your identity, because you've talked about yourself uh, connecting to the topic of your course personally as a mm-hmm. cancer survivor mm-hmm. and professionally as a political scientist and civically as a person who um, has has engaged in so much advocacy and so much work that benefits all of us. How has global learning impacted you personally? When you think about how being a global learning faculty member has impacted you and how you just go through your everyday life, how you, how you see the world. So I, I talked about validation. I, it also I, I find the global learning since taking the global learning training, I've also given myself permission to be more curious. Mm. And, and I love the fact that 
you can actually have just you can start a class with a question and not need to have all the answers as a, even as a faculty member and with the students come to that different perspective or, or come to a global learning perspective yourself and we had um we had we had just actually on my class on tuesday we had a, a brainstorming session you know part of the design thinking of ideation and i had them all write down on post-it notes how they would solve skin cancer prevention and lots of PSAs, lots of let's tax tanning beds, all good, right? And then I got some like really wild ones out there, like let's create a hologram over Miami Beach. And I was like, well, solar panels 10 years ago were probably the hologram over Miami Beach. So we're going to, okay, let's go there. <laughs> but they actually came up with some really fascinating suggestions through different agents that they didn't quite know what agency would go through but you know is there a trade component like could we start regulating sunscreens better in this country and sunscreens that come from overseas like making sure the products that are in there um you know it, it's been fun to be a participant in the global learning classes oh. and that's really what i think has helped it, it's helped draw out this passion for teaching, absolutely. Um, but it's it's really the passion for being curious. And um, I was talking to Dean Espinosa, and he's like, what do you want to teach next? And I gave him a couple of ideas. And he says to me, he goes, he's like, you know what's really interesting right now in Florida? I was like, what? He goes, cannabis. We should teach a class about cannabis. I was like, um, okay, I know nothing about cannabis, uh-huh. but I will try. And sure enough, I spent about a week, you know, armed with my global learning uh, training, and I I knocked out thirty questions, so a few possible books, sent it in as a proposal, and it's all you know policymaking. And and one of the things I've been doing since taking the course is I'll read a story about cannabis, and I'll be like, huh, that's a good question. Like, can law enforcement actually search and seizure? If you have pot in the car, because that's used to be how they would do it. If you had pot in the car, that gave them probable cause to search for other things. Well, now if you have pot in the car and it's legal in Florida, is that probable cause anymore? So the topic's not really about cannabis, but it does raise these really interesting questions. Yes. And I, I have, I have reminded myself why I majored in political science, not just for the good of it, but because. Y- you know, through constitutional law, through policymaking, you really can dive into some interesting questions. And that's been my favorite part from, from a personal development. Oh, Kate, I am so delighted that our schedules, <laughs> your travel schedule and my travel schedule could intersect. I know you're busy. <laughs> today, today, this morning, because I feel invigorated myself and I feel safer knowing that you are here and equipping a, a new generation, a new cadre of physicians to take care of me and my children yep. and and our communities. I thank you. Oh, my uh, thank pleasure. you for that work. Thank you for for being here and for for sharing your story. Well, thanks for heading up this department. It's amazing. (laughs) All right. Well, let's keep playing together and asking questions. That sounds great. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Global Learning Universal. This podcast is brought to you by FIU's Office of Global Learning Initiatives, Media Technology Services, and our Disability Resource Center. 
you can find all our episodes, show notes, transcripts, and discussion guides on our webpage, globallearningpodcast.fiu.edu. And if this episode was meaningful to you, please share it with colleagues, friends, and students. You can even give it a rating on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in and for all you do to make global learning universal.